check. All right, we are on the way to Precipice. Then we're going to Gideon Springs, Beth Cheyenne, and then Baptism. Did I say that right? Yes. And then Baptismal at the Jordan. So, how long is the drive to Precipice? One hour ride now. So, sit back, squeeze in tight, get to know your neighbor. And, uh, Marcus, will you pray? Thank you, JC. Father, we thank you for another beautiful day. Thank you for allowing us to be alive and be enjoying this beautiful creation. Thank you for our bus driver. Thank you for our guide. We appreciate their service. And we pray that you would give us safety as we travel today. We pray that we would be able to fully take in all that we're experiencing. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our families back home, keep them safe. And may we come away from this trip refreshed, renewed, May our vision for you and for your ministry and for your work be clearer than ever. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For not missing the opportunity, we've been seeing in the last two days the cliffs over here, which are known as the cliffs of Arbel, A-R-B-E-L, Arbel. Uh, Arbel used to be a Jewish village from the Second Temple period. Uh, there's even a synagogue there from the 3rd century, after the temple was destroyed. And uh, I'll explain the name Arbel in a second, it comes from the Talmud. But uh, the story here, you could see a cross of Magdala. Magdala is to the left hand side. You could see a cross of Magdala, those caves, which are natural caves. And along that cliff, we have more natural caves, uh, some bigger, some smaller. Uh, Herod, before he became the king of the Jews in 37 BCE, he's actually been pointed out to be the uh, commander of the Roman troops here in the Galilee. And, um, you know, his, uh, his family was, was, uh, was very well connected with the Romans, especially the, the, they were known to be uh, very uh, reliable allies of Mark Anthony at the time, was the emperor. So uh, that's how the family got all of those kind of uh, nice jobs similar to uh, what politics we are kind of familiar with today. Um, a friend brings another friend, a family member, another family member. But anyway, uh, it's a time where we spoke about the very high taxes Romans used to charge and uh, um, all kind of restrictions. So if you wanted to live well under Roman control, there are two, two main things you had to do, to be loyal to the empire and to pay your taxes. If you've done that, you could have lived very well under Roman control. But if you didn't want to pay your taxes, that you got into a problem. So uh, it was uh, sort of, uh, I wouldn't say like an uprising, but definitely some resistance of the Jewish population here in the Galilee, and specifically the people of Arbel. Um, and uh, the Romans were, they were led by, Jews, by uh, uh, Herod at the time. And um, he wanted to take over the, uh, you know, the, the, that, the, the village. And the uh, villagers actually went down to the caves. You see here, the cliff is just above us. You can see those caves. So they got into those caves and hid in the caves. They even, I mean, even kind of fortified those caves a little bit uh, to be more, I would say, accommodating. And they've actually hid there for, for a long, long time. And the Roman soldiers got very, very frustrated because there was no way to get into those opens of the caves. And every night, the Jewish fighters used to go out, come out of the caves Went to go into those uh, camps of the Romans, attack them, 
surprise them and escape back to the caves. That's his last for a few months. And at one point, Herod actually uh, said that uh, there was no way. Uh, he, he had to get into those opens, the mouths of the caves. So he took big cages. He tied them into like ropes. And he, in a way, upset the soldiers in the cages down to the opens of the caves. And then the idea was to capture the rebels. But I mean, the Roman soldiers were so frustrated. Many of them were actually put in a really, like the fire, the caves, and they, uh, they fought to them hand to hand. And they actually killed many of the Jews, others were captured. And Josephus Flavius described how some of the Jews even jumped off of the cliff in order to avoid being captured by the Romans. He even describes a father who had seven kids and he actually threw them off the cliff one by one and then his wife and then he jumps off by himself just not to be captured by the Romans. This is all from 38 BCE. So it's a year before Herod really becomes the king of the Jews in the, in the land of Judea. Of course he was pointed out to be the king of the Jews by the Romans, uh, not by the Jews. So that, these are the cliffs of Orbel. That's the very famous story of the cliff of Orbel. I can tell you that later on in the 17th century, there was a family from Lebanon, a Muslim family that escaped from uh, a revenge. And they also hid in the caves of Orbel, re-fortified it, so we have some remnants of that period of time as well. Uh, there is a way to climb to those fortresses today, which is pretty cool. Uh, you need to use cables and uh, ladders, and uh, it's, it's really like, it's a nice, it's a nice hike. Uh, you know, uh, Israeli kids are uh, like school trips come here very, it's like a very popular hike for the school trip. Um, anyway, the name Arbel, that's also very interesting, it comes from Aramaic. Arbelta, Arbelta in Aramaic is, uh, is like a, a, a filter or a sifter. In the story in the Talmudic, there is a case in the Jerusalem Talmud uh, asking a question whether you find a coin on a beach whether the coin is yours or not. And there's a whole discussion whether you found it and then it's yours or you need to look for the one that actually uh, um, lost it. And what the Talmud actually says, it says, if you see people on the beach with uh, sifters, sifting the sand, that means someone is looking for, for the coins and therefore they've not lost their hope to find it and you're actually committed to give it back. But if you don't see anyone sifting the sand, then probably those people actually lost their hope to find it and you can keep it for yourself. And the name of that sifter in, in Aramaic is Arbelta. Now, why would the mountain named Arbel? Because if you look at it from an aerial photo, it has many, many holes. That's the karst, the logical kind of karst uh, phenomenon where the water gets in touch with the limestone and actually melts the limestone and creates those eventually caves that's why it has caves but from an aerial photo it looks like a like a like a sifter many many holes in the limestone and therefore it's named Arbel but it comes from that uh, debate in the uh, in the Talmud and uh, someone asked me this morning I mean about the four holy cities um, we say Jerusalem Hebron Tiberias and Tzfat, right? So I guess everyone knows why Jerusalem is holy. Uh, I guess the vast majority would know why Hebron is holy, right? The burial sites of the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Sarah, Re Rebecca, and Leah. You all know that uh, Rachel was buried on the way to Ephrata, which is near Bethlehem. So there is Rachel's tomb 
which is somewhere else. And, uh, and then we are left with the two others. So Tzfat, which is the town I showed you yesterday on top of the mountain, which is the capital of the Upper Galilee, that would be on the mountains over there. Tzfat is known to be the center, I wouldn't say the birthplace, but definitely the very beginning of the extension of Jewish Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Uh, by the way, Kabbalah, Kabbalah is like an American way to pronounce it. The American Jews say Kabbalah, but actually it's Kabbalah, means reception. You receive, you receive and you give. It's a, it's a, whole, it's a whole philosophy of life, it tries to help us not understanding but feeling and help us to feel what's right and what's wrong in life in order to try and make the right decisions for ourselves and for society. Uh, it's it's very, very ancient philosophy of life. It shares a lot in common with, uh, I would say, Hinduism, Buddhism, and many of that kind of meditation aspects. And, uh, but it comes from the Jewish sources, from the Jewish canon, canonic books. Um, so that's, Tzfat is known to be the center for Jewish mysticism, Jewish Kabbalah. Uh, the traditionally, uh, the first book of Kabbalah known as the book of Zohar, Zohar means glow, was written by uh, Rashbir, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Samuel, son of Yochai, who is buried just outside of the city of Tzfat. And uh, the story about him that uh, he lived uh, under the Roman, I mean, 2,000 years ago, throughout the Roman Empire, and uh, there were four Jewish sages sitting and talking about politics, like we do today. And one of them said, look, how amazingly the Romans have been building the country. They built new roads, new bridges, marketplaces, palaces, cities. I mean, really amazing. And the other guy said, yeah, but everything they build, they build for themselves. It's not for us. It's to glorify the empire. It's to make more money. It's not for us, it's for them. And Rabbi Shimon Baruchai was sitting there and he said, not only they built it in order to glorify themselves, but actually it's in order to destroy us. And what does it mean? It means if we let the Roman culture take over, that would take over the Jewish one. It means it's, a, it's not just a physical rule, but it's basically a cultural one that slowly, slowly will kind of uh, extend Judaism. And since he spoke so badly about the Romans, they had a price over his head. So he took his son, they escaped to the Galilee, from Jerusalem to the Galilee, and him and his son lived in a small cave not far from Tzfat for 13 years. And during those uh, 13 years, he lived on a spring that was nearby and a curb tree that actually grew next to the cave. That's according to the Mishnahic uh, description. And uh, throughout those years, he actually wrote the book of Zohar, book of glow and light, which is traditionally the first book of, of Kabbalah, of, of Jewish mysticism. So that's all related to the area of Tzfat, and therefore Tzfat, as the ancient city of, around that area, was the first town to be influenced by, by that philosophy. And up to today, Tzfat is known to be the center for Jewish mysticism, and therefore that's, it became one of the holy cities. What about Tiberias? So first, Tiberias was built by King Herod's son, named Herod Antipas, in the year, between the years 17 and 18 AD, so really the very beginning of the first century. And the name was given to honor the emperor at the time in Rome, which was Emperor Tiberius. 
So uh, it was named after the emperor, as many of the local rulers uh, used to do in order to, in a way, show loyalty uh, and respect to the emperor. That was the key for, uh, for your power. Um, but what made Tiberias one of the four holy cities? So uh, I guess you guys are familiar with that, you know, the temple was destroyed. We spoke about it already, but um, I'll just repeat it. Uh, as long as the temple had been active in Jerusalem, the only way to worship God was by making animal sacrifices at a temple. I can see you taking photos of the Galilee. We're crossing now the lower Galilee, trying to envision a hand, and we're driving across. So we have ridges and valleys, ridges and valleys. That's how the lower Galilee actually geographically or topographically is formed. We're driving from north to south, so we're crossing those valleys and ridges. Um, this is why it's been very, very comfortable to live here and to settle down here throughout history because the valleys are very wide. So there's enough space for, as you could see, that village being built along the hillside. And then you have a very fertile land along the very wide valleys to grow any crops you want. So uh, the lo that, that's, that's the lower Galilee. Upper Galilee would be farther north where you could see the very tall ridges. So the, that's, that's this they actually distinguished between lower Galilee and upper Galilee. The very east end of the lower Galilee would be the Sea of Galilee. So that would be east of us. Um, But I mean, over there you can see the city of Tiberias on top of that hill where you see the tower. That's the upper part of the of Tiberias. And the other hill, which is a bit higher, these are the horns of Hattin. Horns of Hattin was the major battlefield in 1187 when Salah Din and the Muslims completely defeated the Crusader forces here in the Galilee. Um, so that's a very famous uh, battlefield. Next to it, we have the holiest place for the Druze religion in the world, which is uh, the burial site of Prophet Jethro. And that's the most important prophet for, for the Druze religion. Um, so you can see everywhere you go here, you kind of find a combination of cultures, religions, holiness, and nature. Cliffs of our bell from the other side here. See that cliff? We just came from there. And that's, that would be the Valley of Genesaret. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. Exactly the same person, yeah. Jethro. Anyways, going back to Tiberias, which is right over there. Up. Um, so, worshipping God. Remember the making animal sacrifices in one place only, which was the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, it doesn't mean Joseph never went, you know, outside of Jerusalem to Bethel, to Tel Dan, to Arad, to build altars over there. That's against the will of, of the Lord. Okay, I mean, uh, you know the, you know Jacob was named by the angel. What was the name uh, Joseph got from the angel? Israel. After the fight, Israel. Israel, right? What's the meaning of the word Israel? Struggles with God, thank you very much. So we Jews, we were known to struggle with God. Good times, bad times, roller coaster throughout history. So yeah, there were times Jews went outside of Jerusalem to worship God, okay? But in general, it was allowed to do it in one place only, which was actually in Jerusalem. Temple is destroyed now in 70 AD by the Romans. 
No more animal sacrifices. That's the last time we had animal sacrifices. What replaced the animal sacrifices? Prayers, right? Prayers. Since then we find many more synagogues all over the country. But what actually happened with the Jews? Right after the destruction of the temple, Jews woke up and they asked themselves, how can we now move on and continue with our Jewish lives without a temple? What, what are we going to do not to do worship God? There's no temple anymore. And to make a long story short, they were led by two main figures. One was Rabban Gamliel, and the other one was Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakai, Rabbi John or Yohanan, son of Zakai. Two great leaders who were kind of well connected with the Romans, and they got into sort of a compromise. What was the compromise? They got a place in a, a, a named Yavne, which is southwest of Jerusalem, where they opened what today I guess we would have called the first yeshiva. What is yeshiva? It's, it's, it's a Jewish school for Jewish studies only. And what the first sages of that yeshiva did was to put together the first written version of the oral law. Remember, Moses got at Mount Sinai, according to our belief, the five books of Moses, which is the written law, and then also the oral law that had never been written. It actually passed down throughout the generations for father to sign by heart, and the practical day-to-day -day life followed basically the rules of the oral law that were based on the written law. So in a way, it's like a practical interpretation of the written law for the day, for, for, for the practice of the day-to-day -day life. So the first time there was a need to write it down was after the destruction of the second temple. So those sages went to Yavne, put together the first written version of the oral law, which is in a way codification of Jewish laws. What's allowed, what's forbidden, how to practically practice Judaism on a day-to-day -day basis with all the, I would say, adjustments needed or had to be done since the temple was already destroyed. How do we call these sets of books up to today? The Mishnah. I guess you've heard the name Mishnah. Uh, by the way, Lishnot means to study. Lishnot means to study and to repeat. So Mishnah is basically studies and reputation. We actually put kids at the age of uh, 12, 13, not we, but I mean the very orthodox, to study the Mishnah and to repeat it in order to actually know the rules. Today in the system of the Orthodox Jews, many, I mean, I'm talking about the very ultra-Orthodox, girls at the age of 11, 10, 11, 12, 13, would study the Mishnah, because in the future, they would, be, they would be the ones to run the house, kosher, purification, um, just name it. So they need to know all of those rules uh, way better than, than the men. But anyway, so this is the Mishnah. So Mishnah has been written by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and the Jewish council all over the Galilee uh, throughout the second century. And the Mishnah was sealed in a place named Tsipori, Sufferies, by Rabbi Yudah Nasi, Rabbi Judah, the president of the Sanhedrin, around 213 AD. So here we have a Mishnah, 70 the temple was destroyed. There was another revolt of the Jews against the Romans called Bar Kofa revolt between 132 and 135 AD. Mishnah was written, 213, we have Jewish codification, uh, codification of Jewish rules and laws, so Jews would know how to practice Judaism. 
But then what starts right away is another period of time we call the Talmudic period. I guess you've heard the, about the Talmud. What is the Talmud? If the Mishnah is all the laws, what's allowed, what's forbidden, what would be the Talmud? The Talmud would actually be the commentaries of the Mishnah. So it's another generation, they read the Mishnah and they question it. Why these sages chose that this would be the rule and not that? Why on Hanukkah we add a candle every night and we do not take off a candle every night? Why not to start from eight and reduce one every night to one? Or, I mean, again, if you, uh, I don't know, there is a tree, uh, its branches go to the, from a private property, the branches actually go out into the public area, they're fruits, whether someone who walks on the street is allowed to pick up the fruit or not. So there is, the Mishnah tells you whether it's allowed or not, but the Talmudic kind of uh, uh, sages would say, eh, eh, let's argue that. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to eliminate or to kind of question the law of the Mishnah, but it gives them the opportunity to question. In Judaism, you, you, you we in general encourage questioning everything. The main thing that if you're faithful, even if you don't have all the answers, you still follow the rule or the law. Uh, but, but it's very much encouraged to ask everything and to question everything. So when you go to uh, any yeshiva today all over the world, what the students would study is the Talmud. The way to study it is you sit in groups of between two and four. You, you know, every Talmudic page would start with a quote from the Mishnah. And then you have all the commentaries, the discussions, the arguments between the sages of the Talmud. And these two to four people in a group would argue contemporarily, like nowadays, about those kind of things, try to appeal it to our day today's life. And um, in many ways, it's like studying law. You try to learn from one case over the other, precedent over something more contemporary. I mean, uh, that's the way to study the Talmud. And it's very, very uh, joyous for the for the learners because uh, you can really share your own thoughts as well. That That's the thing. You, just, you, you don't just shoneh, means repeat and study, as the Mishnah does. You actually argue. And that's uh, what students really like. Uh, to be opinionated, the voice to be heard, to argue. You get into a yeshiva, there are a lot of like voices. It's very loud, it's not like quiet, it's not a classroom, it's really studying. Um, now we have two versions of the Talmud. One is called the Babylonian Talmud. So by the name you know where it was written. That's Babylon, those Jews who've been exiled to Babylon, stayed in Babylon, lived in Babylon, and wrote a Talmud in Babylon. This is the most common Talmud you find all over the world up to today. And the second version of the Talmud is called the Jerusalem Talmud. By the name you can understand it, it was written in the land of Israel. But to be more specific, it's been written mostly in the Galilee, not in Jerusalem. And it was sealed eventually in Tiberias. The Jewish Sanhedrin actually ended up in Tiberias, stayed in Tiberias, and that Talmud was actually ended to be written in Tiberias. So it was supposed to be named the Tiberius Talmud, but for the, uh, I guess, superiority of Jerusalem, the respect, the honor for Jerusalem, they named it after Jerusalem. But that's what actually made Tiberius a holy city. It's where the Jerusalem Talmud was actually written. At. And uh, that was the hometown of Jewish Sanhedrin back in the third and the fourth centuries AD. The Talmud was actually sealed in around 400 AD. And uh, since then, after today, that's probably the most common 
a series of books to be studied in Jewish uh, yeshivot, in Jewish kind of schools. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's uh, all kind of ways to study it, but it's mostly um, arguing. That's the <laughs> it's called Shitat HaPilpul. Pilpel is like a pepper, it's spicy, right? You need to be spicy in order to really study the Talmud. It's been proved by the, by the way, scientifically, that those who are good in Talmud would be good in economy, and definitely in law. When you go to a law school in Israel, part of your time would be studying the Talmud. Uh, not necessarily because our law goes or follows the Jewish law, but I mean, because it really develops something in, 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 in learning uh, skills, but also to understand the Jewish law is very, very important in the Jewish state at the same time. Um, so, uh, so that's the Jerusalem Talmud related to Tiberius, makes Tiberius uh, one of the four holy cities. Okay, so that's a good question. What's the, what are the main differences between the Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmud? So Babylonian Talmud would actually be more universal. Jewish rules, Jewish laws of wherever you live as a Jew. Uh, Jerusalem Talmud would have that, but would add to it all the mitzvot, what we call seven laws of Noah, which are related. They, they traditionally, we got them from Moses at Mount Sinai, but they're related only to the land of Israel. So a series of mitzvot of Jewish laws that we're supposed to practice only in the land of Israel. For instance, here's a metaphor. Uh, every 50 years, we kind of uh, rotate the ownership of the land. Jubilee, yeah. Jubilee, we basically reshare the land. So if you were born unlucky to a poor family, after 50 years, your luck might be changed. That's a social thing. I mean, not to keep that hierarchy and social class forever. These are all laws that come from yeah. from Mount years. Sinai, from the Torah, basically. But we're committed to uh, 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 practice those laws only in the land of Israel. And the Jerusalem Talmud would, would definitely focus on those kinds of rules. No, no Jubilee in Babylon. But you know, Babylon, Babylon didn't need it. Euphrates, fertile land. You know, when the Jews were allowed to, to be back after the first exile to Babylon, you know, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians 586 BCE. Jews were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. But a bit earlier, in 538 BCE, Cyrus became the king of Babylon, and he actually called the Jews to return back. Not because he really liked them, he understood the benefits of the Jews returning to the land, developing the land, charge taxes for him, etc, etc. But anyways, 515 BCE, the second temple is, was already built in Jerusalem. But the vast majority of the Jews chose to stay in Babylon. And why? Exactly. They lived in prosperity. I mean, come on. Freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of employment, freedom of everything. They had a good life. Well, why, why to pretend back to the land of uh, nothing? land in milk and honey, but I mean everything else is in Babylon. So the vast majority of the Jews stayed in Babylon. And by the way, it's similar to today. There is a Jewish state, but the majority of the Jews live outside of the country. Because as long as you live in prosperity and you have safety, you don't have a reason to return back. So, um, yeah, Babylon, Babylon is a, was a good place. Of course, New York. New York, New York, yeah. New York is uh, after Israel, definitely.
has the largest Jewish population in the world. And, and generally speaking, the American Jewish population, even though it's less than 2% of the American total American population, but it's the second largest Jewish uh, uh, population in the world. It's about 6.5 million Jews who live in America. As opposed to 7 million in Israel. Only about five, six years ago, we kind of, uh, we, we were kind of break even and then the only growing Jewish population in the world is in Israel. Let's put it this way. But it's a, it's a tiny small minority. I don't know how, how come we make it in the news so often. There's not really a push. I mean, back in the, in the very past, when we speak of the very active Zionist movement, there was definitely a call in many campaigns to bring all the Jews back into Israel. Today we understand the need of having Jews living in, I mean, outside of the country. Uh, politically, the Jewish lobby in America is extremely important for Israel. Uh, to have you guys in America is extremely important for Israel. I mean, we understand that we need those kind of supporting uh, communities outside of the country as well. We, we, you know, the global world actually has raised that need, not just to be uh, segregated, but the other way around, to, to really be part of the, of, the, of the international communities and to have that support from the outside. So we definitely, I mean, appreciate to have Jews living outside of the country. But on the same note, if any Jew feels that first he wants to move back to Israel, or there is a need to move to Israel, let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Jews of Ukraine, they can come to Israel instantly and become citizens right away. Uh, Jews of Ethiopia back in the past, in the 80s, when it was dangerous to be in Ethiopia, after the day, Israel brings them into the country. Um, former Soviet Union Jews, whoever wanted to come. If, uh, so throughout the 90s, we've actually brought into the country more than one million Russian or Soviet Jews. Uh, you know, in Israel, it's something we call the law of return. Basically, it says that every Jew can come to Israel, become a citizen instantly right away, and vote the next day for the parliament. Now, what? it's not, it's not that simple. Because there's an argument, what would be the definition of a Jew? So if you follow the religious definition of a Jew, what's, wh who is a Jew? Born to a Jewish mother, Jewish mother, Jewish mother. So if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish, that's it. Like but many of those Jews were born like maybe Jew. to a Jewish father, maybe a Jewish grandfather, Jewish grandmother, and uh, when Israel actually set up this law of return and it was legislated in the parliament back in the 50s, very beginning of the country, we were still influenced by, by the Holocaust and the Second World War, and we adopted the Nazi definition of Jews from the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, and we said those Jews who have been persecuted by the Nazis based on the Nuremberg Laws would be defined as Jews when it comes to the law of return to the land of Israel. So basically it goes three generations back. Whether your grandfather or your grandmother, one of, them, one of them was Jewish, regardless to the gender, you have the right to move to Israel and become a citizen right away. So it's like a USAA account. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, by the law of return, not by the religious authorities. By the law of return, yeah. Um, but that's again, that's uh, Ben Gurion's actually perception was if Jews had been persecuted by the Nazis and recognized by the Nazis as Jews and were sent to the gas chambers. Even they were born to non-Jewish parents, but one of the grandparents was Jewish, we would be the safe place and safe ground for those Jews as well, I mean, for the future. That was the main concept behind it. Now in the new radical government, 
they want to eliminate the, thre the third generation uh, rule. And that's a big debate now. A huge debate because uh, the more liberal, moderate kind of study says, no, that's the purpose of, the, of, of, of Israel. While the very religious radicals who made you part of the government says, but they're not really Jewish. We're going to encounter a huge problem in the future if we bring hundreds of thousands of millions of officially non-Jews into the country. And then intermarriage would be a major problem. It's a now like a hard issue. How would you take away that argument from the daily debate? You create security escalation. Look what happened in last weekend. I believe it's not by accident. It's all planned to take away the attention from the uh, um, public resistance to the some of the radical acts of the, of the new government. You take away that attention, suddenly you have in the news security escalation, terror attacks, what you do against terrorists, whatever, and suddenly you have a consensus, right? You bond the people around the outside enemy, except for dealing with the domestic issues. except for Levites, which we have the Kohanim and Levine coming out of, all the other tribes have been lost. Nowadays, the Ethiopian Jews claim to be the descendants of the lost tribe of Dan. Genetically, it's hard to prove. There are some Jews who live in India who claim to be uh, members of the lost tribe of uh, Menashe. But we don't know. You know, the fact is that many of those people carry traditional Jewish names and they follow some of the very very ancient Jewish traditions such as reading from the scrolls uh, lighting Shabbat candles which was very odd to see Ethiopians lighting Shabbat candles I mean they definitely had something with the Jewish traditions being kept in their black families whether these are genetically the, the descendants of any of the lost tribes it's very hard to, uh, to really prove um, but maybe with the new technologies, I mean, being evolved, maybe we'll be able to do it better. I don't know. I truly don't know. I know we've tried with the uh, with the Ethiopian Jews. Uh, it's not been proved. Uh, not even close to 100. percent There is some something to the claim, but I mean, very hard to prove because. There's so many, like throughout the years, so many like plantings uh, and intermarriages, and, uh, they, they've lived away, so it's very, very hard to, uh, you know, the Orthodox Ethiopian Church claimed that the beginning of that tie is when uh, Queen of Sheba came to uh, meet with King Solomon, this is when that kind of uh, mixture started. Yeah, to some degree, but yeah, that's. I don't think it goes that far back. Anyways, guys, uh, you know, we're kind of driving through some of the uh, Arab uh, villages and towns in the Galilee, uh, which is joined by the village of Cana, where the uh, first miracle actually happened, turning the water into wine. Um, there is a, there are a couple of churches over there. One is Catholic, one is Greek Orthodox, that is dedicated to that first miracle. 
Is this where the rivers of honey and uh, milk are? <laughs> Let's look for them. Yeah. You know, when the Zionist leaders have tried to uh, convince Jews in Europe to return to the land, you know, as part of the active, political active Zionist movement, they actually kind of sold them a dream. They said in the land of Israel, you look to the right, you see rivers of milk, and then you look to the left, the rivers of honey. And they came over, they saw mostly dry land. Uh, there's no s really such a, it's, it's more of a, meta a metaphor rather than real, you know, uh, rivers of milk and honey. Yes, when we speak of the honey, many people claim that this would be the date honey. And date is one of the seven species of the land of Israel, as well as indigenous to the land. So the descriptions were how the honey was actually kind of running out of the of the date trees and the dates. Um, it's a very romantic way to describe the fertility of the land. If you remember the 12 spies spying the country, 10 came and spoke so badly about the country and how gigantic people live here and everything is so well fortified. Only two came back with a cluster of grapes. Um, so, land of milk and honey, you need to work in order to make it a land of milk and honey. Uh, it's not the Nile Valley that you have it uh, naturally. And there is no specific place to point out to say this is the land of milk and honey. It's, it's a description of the land. But again, we need to help God to help us to make it a land of milk and honey. That is the only reason I came. churches, uh, mixed communities. Um, when we speak of Israeli Arabs, so uh, first, I mean, by definition, Israeli Arabs would be equal citizens in the land of Israel, in the, in the state of Israel. Uh, they would have all the rights, uh, including voting, to have representatives in the Knesset. In the previous government, it was the first time in our history when uh, an Israeli Arab political party joined and became part of the coalition government. And that was historic. I mean, it's never been, you know, uh, done before. Um, so theoretically, they're really like equal citizens. But I'm saying that by the definition of Israel as a Jewish state, there are two exceptions for whoever is not Jewish in the land. One, we've already talked about the law of return, right? The law of return for Jews, three generations back, but it's depending on if you're Jews. If you're non-Jewish in the country, there's no law of return for you. So by definition, that's one discrimination. Second is serving in the army. Well, we've already discussed it. Israeli Arabs in general, again, I'm not talking to specifics, but in general, do not serve in the Israeli army. So if it's mandatory for every Israeli, even though you're an Israeli and you have the fully citizenship and you vote and you get social security and uh, Medicare and education, everything as an Israeli citizen, 
the mandatory service that doesn't really abuse you and you don't really serve in the Israeli army. These are the two exceptions when, we, when it comes to full citizenship for non-Jews in Israel. Specifically, you can see Israeli Arabs. Uh, to make it more like a day-to-day -day thing, what does it mean to be an Israeli Arab? Think of uh, an Israeli Arab who might be Christian, Muslim, Druze, whatever. And he, let's make it interesting, he plays soccer for a living. That's his, his job, fun job, to play soccer. And he plays in the Israeli league, of course, because he's an Israeli citizen. And uh, he's a very, very good player. He plays for the national team of the, of the state of Israel. And by the way, we have about four of them playing for the Israeli national team. Before every international game, what do we do? We play the national anthem. What's the national anthem of Israel? It's called Hatikva, the hope. And the very, very first, actually the second verse of it says, Nefesh Yehudi Homia. What is Yehudi? Jewish, Yehudi, Jewish. So a, a Jewish soul is seeking a longing to return to the Holy City of Zion. Because the hope, it's Hatikva, the hope. That's the hope of the Jews for 2,000 years to return to the Promised Land, right? So the national anthem actually represents it. So if this Israeli Arab who's Christian or Muslim or Druze stand there and he says, ah, but I don't have a Jewish soul. So my national anthem is not really mine, right? Okay, I, I understand. I live in the Jewish state. I understand. Get it. Probably flag would be another national symbol for all of us. So he raises his eyes and he sees this beautiful flag, blue and white. It's blown by the wind. And the Jewish Israeli flag was designed to look like a Jewish praying shawl with the two stripes. And then they added even the Star of David. I mean, very Jewish, right? He says, okay, okay, I understand. I live in the Jewish state, right? Probably the national emblem would be for all of us, universal. What's Israel's national emblem? What's the most defined Jewish symbol in the world? A menorah. No, a menorah. So the Israeli national emblem is the menorah with the two branches of holy trees and it says Israel at the bottom. Guys, everything in Israel is, in a way, every national symbol, every national holiday, every, uh, we follow the Jewish calendar when it comes to holidays. It's all Jewish. If you're non-Jew lives in a country, even if on a day-to-day -day basis you feel fully equal, and you go to Israeli hospitals, 25% of the doctors, nurses, workers would be Arabs. You go to almost every law firm, 20% of the lawyers would be Arabs. You go to a high-tech industry, 20% of the engineers would be Arabs. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, they're truly equal and make a very nice living and live very, like, freedom of religions and everything else. At the very bottom line, they cannot be 100% fully integrated into it because it's a Jewish state. And all the national holidays, all the, uh, they can celebrate Christian, Muslim, Jews, uh, whatever holidays. I mean, they have days off at school and everything. But I mean, the national holidays, they're all Jewish national holidays. Everything is Jewish, Jewish symbols, Jewish. And that, that's the, almost like a daily dissonance for uh, non-Jews who live in Israel. As I told you on the other day, if you're a minority group that doesn't have any national demands or ambitions to have your own nation political entity, you're embraced by the Israeli society. The main problem with many of the Israeli Arabs that they still feel and affiliate themselves with the, with the brothers and sisters Palestinians. And therefore, as long as this conflict has not been solved, they live in that dissonance, feeling for their brothers and sisters in Palestine, enjoying the benefits of being, uh, living under Israeli control. They understand they, they will never give up, give up the Israeli citizenship. They're not fully accepted because they're not really Jewish, though the definition of the state is a Jewish state. 
And that's a daily dissonance for every Israeli urbanist in the country. They love citizens, by laws, they pay taxes, they work, they, they function, they contribute, but at the same time, that's, in a way, there's always such a, something that is not fully uh, completed. But that's the, that's the reality. We're not going to change the definition of Israel as a Jewish state, as a Jewish homeland, and probably they're not going to become Jewish, so uh, they're not going to convert, so that's going to be probably uh, the, the situation for, for many, many years to come. Just to clarify, what's the, sometimes the tensions we have within, like domestic tensions we have within the country. And traffic, like everywhere, morning traffic. You know, you, 2,000 years ago, yeah, this is not traffic. 2,000 years ago, when you wanted to get to the uh, village of Nazareth, there was no traffic. Remember, it's a tiny small village, 25, 30 families, 100 people maybe. Um, you could have uh, taken your donkey, Right on the open fields, no traffic. Cana, uh, which is today much, much smaller than Nazareth, at the time was the largest city. So it was Nazareth near Cana. Now it's the opposite. Cana near Nazareth. Na Nazareth is actually the largest Arab town in the country, with about 120,000 people living in the city. So it's never been designed, it's never kind of designed to really accommodate so much traffic, tourists. Um, The best, day, the best way, the best day to come and visit is Sunday, because uh, almost everything is closed. There's a lot of parking. That's that's easier. You said this is Canaan. No, no, we 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 just uh, drove by Canaan. This is already the entrance to Nazareth. Okay. You can see we are uh, on top of a ridge, which called. Uh, Nazareth, <laughs> and that's the most south ridge of the Lower Galilee. That's the beginning. From here in north, that would be Galilee. So that would be the Lower Galilee. South of us, that would be the Jezreel Valley. So after the precipice, we're going to drive. We're going to drive down to the Jezreel Valley towards Gideon Spring, which is in the foothills of Mount Gilboa, which is also a biblical. Like we did on the boat last night, guys, a special treat. We're going to be able to uh, be in the live audience of the RFP podcast. The guys are going to actually record on top of Mount Precipice. So, um, get to uh, be a part of that so we're gonna we'll hurry up the hill get set up and uh, yeah bring your um your headsets as well and there, there is a restroom at the bottom there if you have to if there's an emergency but uh, please don't dilly dally that's a technical term and uh, hurry back up the hill man he's looking at you Look, look to the right hand side. <coughs> this would be Nazareth, I mean, not what you see, but the valley in the hillside, that would be Nazareth of uh, the time of Christ. Today, now we're down in the, the bottom of it, the, the church of the Annunciation. You don't have to now, but I'd like to have the. Of course, nothing of this large city existed at the time.
is the Galilee has been known throughout history as the main center for growing olives, make, I mean, yeah. and making olive oil. So merchants used to come from Egypt, from Lebanon, from all the region to get their olives and olive oil from the Galilee. Up to today, most of the olive oil we produce comes from here, from the Galilee. Uh, when we speak of uh, Carmel, speaks of Carmel means Caramel, God's orchard. The orchards refer not to vineyards, but to olive orchards because that's very common to this region. There's a town built in 1964 named Kaumiel. Again, the orchards of God, all about olive orchards. Uh, so that's very, very, really like very uh, well known in that region up to today. Uh, but uh, thinking of 2000 years ago or any of the ancient times, olive oil has been used for much more than just cooking. Today we just cook with it. And still, I mean, in the Middle Eastern cuisine, we use a lot of olive oil for cooking. But I mean, back then it was uh, way more important. What actually used to be done out of olive oil at the time? Electricity, exactly. Electricity, number one usage for olive oil at the time was actually oil lamps. And then on top of it, all cosmetic products, soaps, uh, moisturizers, everything used to be made out of olive oil. And on top of it, food. Food was not the main usage for olive oil. Yeah. <coughs> Together with some incense. And the mainstream tradition would actually go to Mount Tabor. Either way, I mean, we're not sure. But this story is the most important because uh, if God, yeah, if God really revealed himself to humans uh, once at Mount Sinai to Moses, so once in transfiguration to Jesus and then Mount Zion to the disciples of Pentecost. Uh, three very, very important mountains creating like a triangle. Um, okay, so guys, we're getting off the bus. We are